Welcome to Family History, Genealogy Made Easy. I'm your host, Lisa Louise Cook. You probably have a lot of curiosity about your family history, but not a lot of time. And that's why I created this podcast. In each episode, I'm going to give you the tools that you need to uncover your family tree in quick and easy ways. Now, in our last episode, we covered marriage records, and as promised in this week's episode, we finish up vital records by going back to the beginning, birth records. And just like marriage records, there's a variety of records to track down. So to help us in the hunt, I'm bringing in professional genealogist Arlene Eagle, who's going to help us see the challenges that we face and achieve the success that we want in locating civil birth records. So you may have one family that you're researching, you're trying to get the birth records for all of the children, but the family has been on the move during the time that the children are born. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you're going to have to, you really can't do it without a little research in order to determine where to look. It's not like you can put the name of your ancestor online in a search screen, just a general search screen and expect the birth certificate information to pop up. So as I said, it's very easy to determine when vital records are first kept, when when official birth records were kept. There are two major groups of birth records, civil and church. And in today's episode, Arling will give us specific targeted information about which records are available and how to obtain them. So, Get ready for an intensive half hour of training from the best in the biz, Arlene H. Eagle, Ph.D. Arlene Eagle, Ph.D. is the president and founder of the Genealogical Institute, Inc., and a professional genealogist since 1962. She holds both master's and a Ph.D. in English history and an associate degree in nursing. She's an expert in tracing ancestors from the southern states, including the Appalachian Triangle, southwest Virginia, northeast North Carolina, southeast Kentucky, and east Tennessee. She's also experienced in New York research, tracing ancestors from New England and New Jersey across New York into Pennsylvania, Ohio, and Tennessee. And she's skilled at researching English, Scottish, Irish, and Swiss German ancestors. A prolific writer with more than 90 titles, she was general co-editor of the award-winning The Source, Guidebook for American Genealogy, and author of three chapters. She co-authored the national bestseller, Family History for Fun and Profit, The Genealogy Research Process and Genealogy in Land Records, and Ancestry's Guide to Research. This is One Savvy Woman, and in the first segment of our interview done over Skype, Arlene digs right into an overview of civil birth records. Well, hi, Arlene. Thank you so much for joining me on the show today. I appreciate it. Oh, you're certainly welcome. Glad to have you here. I know that you have a, a thriving genealogy consulting business and appreciate you taking some time out today to talk about birth records. And they're obviously part of the vital records collection of records. And we just want to devote this show to talk about the different types that are out there and how we go about finding them and maybe how we're going to benefit by finding them. Do you want to just start off with a little bit of an overview of what types of birth records there are? 
Well, probably the most the most well known are birth certificates, and people think you know I need to get a birth certificate for this person. Well, those are really modern records. Uh, birth certificates, as such, don't go back very far, and so they're they're frequently uh, disappointed when they write um, a state agency or a county courthouse or whatever and and ask for a birth certificate and are told that they were not kept for the time period that they seek. And and, um, some very key places like the state of New York doesn't begin birth certificates on a local level until 1881 and not until after 1900 on a state-wide basis. And so, you know, the kind of thing that we normally, the, the kind of information that we normally seek isn't available and it causes confusion. What shall I do next? Where do I go? But there are a number of birth records um, that are recorded in some very reliable sources. Uh, cemetery records, church records, newspapers, although newspaper recording of birth records is quite late, too. In the early time period, you're more apt to get marriages or deaths than birth records. My guess is that would be because marriages and deaths had legal and financial ramifications, didn't they? Yes, they did. So reporting that yes, in they the, did much the more so than birth records. Yeah. So really, we're talking about a variety of locations where you can find birth information and actual vital records. I'm assuming are are the civil records that you're talking about that the government is recording, and then we have yes, church they're recorded records. late, and they're recorded okay. late, and, and then church records. I'm assuming go much further back. Oh, yes, they go back um, back to the founding of this country and, of course, far, much farther back, you know, for other places. Exactly. Well, yeah. then let's start with the civil records because those are going to be the most current. We're going to work our way backwards in, in collecting these records. The civil records, from what you're saying, they really are, by jurisdiction, everything kind of happened at different times. It wasn't like the U.S. government said, um, we're going to start on January 1st of 1900. No, that's right. It was left up to um, each individual state, and uh, some states, like Virginia, required by law that they be filed fairly early. They were to be collected by the church. Uh, the same thing is true in Maryland. Maryland keeps them quite early. So now, even though they were civil records, they were collected by the, the local church? They were Yes, they were civil records, but they were collected by the church. That, the church was given the responsibility to do that. Mm-hmm. Now, the exception is the New England area, where when our ancestors came to the New England area, to Massachusetts Bay and to uh, Rhode Island, they didn't bring with them the desire for the church to have any control over their lives. Yeah. They had already had enough of that. And so they set up the civil recording of births, marriages, and deaths on a town basis. And so each New England town, which is is in a number of ways the equivalent of the county in other areas, mm-hmm. um, the town was responsible for the collecting of the birth records. And um, one of the things that I, I've always found very, very intriguing is that when they decided to print these vital records that had been kept by the town, they decided to use a format that was consistent and similar for each town. And so they printed all the births together, 
all the marriages together, all the deaths together. And that sounds like a very logical way to proceed. Right. However, what they did was <clears throat> to disrupt the family order, which many of the clerks did, where they recorded the vital records on a family basis, father, mother, and all the kids. Mm-hmm. And so when they printed them, they destroyed that very important evidence. And so when you're searching the birth records looking for an ancestor, it is absolutely essential that you also check the death records because you may be tracing someone who died as an infant. Mm, right. And, of course, would not be your ancestor. And that's a very common mistake because the, the order of the, you know, the records themselves would have preserved the evidence that this child that was born here to this set of parents died within a, a, a few months or a year or maybe even, you know, at the age of 10. Exactly. And so it's very important that you check. And if, if you don't find it, any entries in the death records, don't stop there. It's important that you also look for cemetery information to make sure that that child did not die, as, uh, that person did not die as a child. And so with that caveat and, and the fact that you are using a printed record, it's, uh, it's important that you try to get a copy of the original. And while we're talking about the New England area, there are another number of examples in the court records where the father would come into court and declare his family, listing himself. Sometimes he listed his wife, sometimes he didn't. Mm-hmm. but he would list each of his children in the order of their birth and where they were born. And it may not be the place where they're currently residing. Right. And so uh, I have found some wonderful, wonderful information by going through the, the actual minutes of the town and looking for these kinds of declarations. You'll also find a similar kind of declaration in, in Virginia and other parts of the South, where uh, they wanted to be sure that they had all of the taxable people identified and that some did not slip through, you know, through the system, mm-hmm. and, and so they couldn't collect the taxes. And so they made it a penalty if a new immigrant family arrived and they didn't go before the local court and declare all of the children who were of taxable age, regardless of the age of the child, that child would be taxed. Right. And so you find a similar kind of thing where the father will come in before the court and he will declare all of his taxable children, those that are uh, of an age, and, and the age was considered to be 16. So all males of six, the age of 16 will be declared before the court. So it's almost like a delayed birth record. And so we often don't think about checking the courthouse for birth records when, in fact, there could be a number of instances where that birth record has already been established and is recorded at the, you know, at the courthouse or the equivalent of the courthouse as in New, the New England town. 
So it sounds like on the East Coast, obviously, the civil records started much earlier because being out here on the West Coast, I'm, I'm pretty familiar with the records out here. And, and of course, it's almost always at the county level. You almost never have, at least that I've run across, the birth records at the town. I mean, I suppose it's yeah, possible. The only exception to that will be where you have towns with, with jurisdiction that is independent of the county. And we uh, do have a number of those places. Virginia has probably the most, the largest number, uh, uh, about 90 different jurisdictions oh, wow. that are not subject to the county at all. They're independent jurisdictions. In Pennsylvania, we have boroughs. Right. And those boroughs were set up on the English system where they were, they were free of, of the county uh, sheriff. Uh-huh. It was freedom from the county. And so they will have their own records. And what you need to do as you're doing your research, if you look in the county and you don't find what you're seeking, then you should consider the fact that your ancestor lived in a jurisdiction that was not subject to the county. Now, in places like Utah, the local, many of the local towns and cities had the right to, to record um, the vital statistics up until the state takes over in 1906. Uh-huh. And you'll find similar kinds of things all across the country. Now, there are nice, very nice tables that you can just Google vital statistics plus your state. And you will get one of those nice little tables that tells you when vital records were first kept in that state. It's That's very, really very key, easy. isn't it? <laughs> uh-huh. It's very much evolved over time, so it really depends on the state you're in and then the time frame that you're looking for. Right, right. And um, Family Search also has a link. If you if you're doing you know something on Family Search, there is a link that you can go to that will give you the information. And a lot of genealogy societies have published it for their members in their quarterlies or their newsletters. So it's, it's very easy information to retrieve. The federal government used to put out a, a publication, and I, I do believe that there are still versions of that that are online as well. And so when you Google it, up comes, you know, one of those as well. So as I said, it's very easy to determine when vital records are first kept, when, it, when official birth records were kept. And right. so from, from that standpoint, you know, when you start research in a new area, then I, I always recommend, and I do myself, I, I determine exactly what was recorded when so that I'm not, I'm not spinning my wheels looking for something that was never kept, and, um, and then I can go immediately into those things that are going to provide the same information but are not considered official birth records. Well, now, let's talk about that a little bit. Um, what kind of information will we be expecting to find? And, and again, has that evolved over time? The types of, yes. the kind of data? It does. It, it, it varies. But you will, you will get the name, in a birth record, you will get the names of the parents, the name of the child, you will get the date of birth, and the place where the birth occurred. Now you may get additional information like, you may get the place of birth, at least as far as a a state is concerned, of the parents. Uh, you may get the date of marriage of the parents. You may get 
or you may get an indication that the parents are married or are not married at the time that the birth occurs. And so, you know, you're going to get both kinds of information. There are some birth records that do give grandparents' names as well, but they're not, that's not part of the normal information. You may get the occupation of the father, which is very, very helpful. Wow, so much great information. Well, we're going to go even further into civil birth records right after we take a break. We're back, and I'm your host, Lisa Louise Cook. Now, let's head back to my conversation with Arlene Eagle and her tips on how to track down civil birth records. Uh, one thing that I probably should mention, too, uh, is has to do with cities. The city of New York is, is probably the best example of where we have highly concentrated population yeah. within a small area. And if the recording of a birth were done in only one book by one clerk, there would there would be not enough time to record all of the births that occur. Mm-hmm. When the microfilming was originally done by the LDS Church in the city of New York in its many boroughs, um, they were unaware that there would be more than one volume or more than one one actual physical book for each time period. Wow. And so when they got when they got the first book covering the time period, then they just went on to the next time period. And they've gone back to try to rectify that problem. Mm. But don't assume because you look on microfilm in a city that there is no birth record because you could indeed be dealing with an area where the population is highly concentrated and there is more than one book. Uh. It's also um, a difference if the county is is the principal recorder of that birth record, they will frequently set up different volumes for the cities within their county. And so you will end up with, you know, additional volumes. They may also create an additional volume if the parents live outside of the boundaries, but the birth actually takes place in the city. The parents live somewhere else they will record that in another book. So there can be multiple volumes covering the very same time frame in, a, in specific jurisdictions, and cities are the most common. And it, it really very, very helpful because if you know that your ancestor did not live within the city limits, you can look in the county recording, and then you can find it, and, and it's very helpful if you have uh, super common names. Uh-huh where you're trying to determine which of these entries is going to be the correct one. Exactly. And I'm curious, now we're talking about books, so I'm thinking in terms of a bit older civil records for birth records, but when did the shift happen where you start seeing birth certificates? Uh, that's going to be determined by law, and um, it will differ in, in every single, it will differ in every single state. Okay. For example, the state of Missouri, you have uh, the recordings are made in books, and the entry will go across two pages usually. Right. 
um, there will be different columns, and the entry will go across. They begin keeping uh, birth records in Missouri in the 1880s. And then when once state registration begins, which is, of course, is well after 1900, then they will start to give actual certificates. It shifts to the state level then. Uh-huh. Okay. Most often. Yeah. That's one of the, the challenges, too, is um, I know uh, here in California there's that date where all of a sudden you're going from the county level to the state level, and the type of record is different, and, and I'm sure that it just looks different in each area, so you really have to kind of meticulously educate yourself about what that particular area did and when it did it so that you cover all your bases. That's very true. And now we have these um, as, as uh, states need more revenue, you yeah. can now, grandparents can purchase uh, a lovely, you know, ornate certificate. And instead of paying what the normal fee is, you may pay as high as $75 if it's gilt, if it has uh, some gold gilding on the document. And that's, you know, so you you purchase one of those on the child. Parents can purchase them too, but you purchase one of those for the child and it's an official birth certificate. Uh-huh. It's it's the information is arranged a little differently on the form, and it's presented in a very lovely way so that it can be framed. Oh wow! A little yeah. bit of way to bring in some income. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Been, some some states have been doing that since the 1950s. Oh wow. Well, to, to recap then, when we have a person that we're trying to find a birth record for, uh, chances are if we're looking in the 20th century, we're probably going to be talking about it's gotten to the state level. I mean, it, it's going to depend, but we would contact either the county or the state. What's the first thing that you do to make that determination is it to look up these tables to know, okay, I'm going to contact the government office or I'm going to go look in the family history library for microfilm? How do you make that determination? Because that's a question I get quite often is how do I know where to start? Because I don't want to send a letter, wait a, a month, and then just get a reply back saying, oh, it's not here. Well, my my first approach is to check the family history library catalog first. Okay. Because their, that's their main, that was their main goal, was to acquire all of the vital records and to put them onto microfilm for all of the states. Uh-huh. And so the dates will be there and be listed. Um, that's not always uh, a simple thing if you're looking in a city. And um, it's, also, it's also very easy to Google the jurisdiction, the place that, that you're, you know your person lived or where you where you think they were born, you have to start with a place. Yeah. So what you know when you have that place, Google the place, and you can get a phone number, and you can simply make a call. And then figure out. They or can you tell can you send right an email. That. Yeah, yeah. And they'll tell you immediately how early their birth records were kept. Great, great. And so you can do it. You know, whichever is is the most convenient and most uh, comfortable for you to do. Because I use the Family History Library all the time, and I go there physically right. three to four times a week. You know, I I just check their catalog first. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Because, because if they have it, then much. you can do it, yeah, and, and if there's then no I can problem. go ahead and get it. And if not, then I do the research to to determine where it's going to be. 
Makes perfect sense. And a number, um, a number of the certificates now are online. You contact the State Bureau of Vital Records, and you, you just bring that up on the screen, and then they will have the link in order to get the information. Some of them are free. If the LDS Church has uh, helped them to digitize the documents, the church requires an agreement where the records will be made available free Wonderful. online. Wonderful. Reason. Or free through the Family History uh, Library, and then they can sell the certificates or per, you know, charge a fee for people who come into their bureau to pick up the documents. Kentucky, for example, mm-hmm. uh, their, vital, their birth records and death records are online, and they're free. Oh, wonderful. Well, Arlene, is there ever um, a situation where a record would would occur both in a certificate form and in a register book form? Should we ever be yes. looking for both? Yes. But normally, the certificate is created by the jurisdiction from the entry in the book. The book is the official entry. Okay. When we make our request, then, should we be asking them to provide copies of both? Is there any reason why something would not show up on the certificate that was in the recorded register? Yes. It's always a good idea to ask for a photocopy of the original entry, whatever that is, whether it's in book form or whether it is um, an actual certificate that, that forms the original and it's been interesting to me, there are some counties that, that will sell you the, for a very nominal fee, or they have already donated all of the original certificates to the local genealogy society. <laughs> yeah. You can acquire it for like 50 cents or a dollar. You get the original birth certificate. Mm. Now they've already digitized them or they've already been filmed but the jurisdiction no longer wants to keep the paper copy, nor do they want to to answer questions about them or supply copies. They don't want to get involved in any of that. Right. That's a great tip because I know in the state of Minnesota, um, they've turned over a large number of the older records to the Historical Society, and you can get them right there on the website. So even beyond the governmental agencies, we've got to look into the local genealogy and historical societies you know, to see if perhaps, and I would assume that a government agency, if they have turned them over, would answer that and let us know that when we call in and say, hey, do you have this time frame? They're going to be able to tell us, oh, contact the historical society. Right, right. But you see, that's, that's going to be part of your initial research that yes. you have to do. And it will change every time you're, you're looking for someone else, someone different, or every time you, you move back in time and you're in another place. So you may have one family that you're researching, you're trying to get the birth records for all of the children, but the family has been on the move during the time that the children are born. Uh-huh. And so, you, you know, you're gonna have to, you really can't do it without a little research in order to determine where to look. It's not like you can put the name of your ancestor online in a search screen, just a general search screen, and expect the birth certificate information to pop up. That's the fun of of genealogy, though. I love the sleuthing. So it it sounds like birth records are going to give us lots of different directions to go. Absolutely. 
Well, we covered a lot of ground with Arlene, and this is only the beginning, because next week, Arlene will join me once again to walk us through the world of church birth records. Well, that's going to bring us to the end of the show. You'll find the show notes for this episode, which include all the links I've talked about at my website, genealogygems.com. And there you'll also discover a lot more tips and tools for finding your family history in my podcasts, the blog posts, books, and videos. Become a Genealogy Gems premium member, and you're also going to get access to exclusive content like my full-length video classes and the premium podcast episodes. We have a new one of those coming out every month. Now, if you have any questions about this episode, or if you'd like to share your experiences on how the podcast has impacted your own family history journey, I would love to hear from you. You can email me at genealogygemspodcast at gmail.com or leave a voicemail at 925-272-4021 and we might just play it here on the show. Thanks so much for listening, friend. I'll talk to you soon.